I've titled this message, When the Waters Rise. Now, this is not so much a question of if the waters will rise, but when the waters will rise. In John 16, and I pray I get it right this time, the Lord said, I have told you these things that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have trouble. I'm not speaking it over you. It's not a declaration. I'm just telling you what the word says. However, the promise is that Jesus has overcome the world. And for us to stay in tune with him and to be close to him is the greatest asset we are gonna have as we progress through the troubles, the trials, and the storms that come across our life. Some of them might be shorter. Some of them extended. But he is with us. And what I have to share with you today, I pray would be a great encouragement to you. I really do. So the first point, well, actually, before I go on, there's another scripture I wanna share with you. And it speaks of God's mandate and the enemy's mandate. It is found in John 10, verse 10, which says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That is the Lord's mandate, abundant life, an overcoming life. It's the enemy's mandate to steal, kill, and destroy. And let me say, not just the enemy. There are many people whose hearts are not in tune with the Lord, and they act out of their own selfish interest, and their actions have immense negative consequences for us in our life. And it's not necessarily that they were motivated by the enemy, but that is still a storm that we're experiencing. And these storms encompass so many things. Loss of a loved one, loss of income, the diagnosis of a dread disease, and so many more. But the Lord, the Lord is the alpha and the omega of our deliverance. He truly is. All right. The first point I'd like to share with you is the Lord will not lose you. The Lord will not lose you. There are times where we know this by faith. We understand it because the Bible tells us so. We've got the scriptures. But the experience of our hearts is we feel dislocated from God. We feel away from him. We feel like somehow he's lost us because that's what's coming up in our hearts in the midst of the trouble that we're going through. And I wanna relate to you, first of all, an incredible story of exploration where the explorers became lost and had to find their way home as a build-up to a biblical example of Jesus finding his apostles. You can turn so long to Matthew 14, verse 22 to 25, and keep your thunder. It's Matthew. First service, I threw out a mark, and it was not correct. <laughs> so please forgive me for that, those who listened to the first service. But it's Matthew 14. Keep your finger there. I want to relate to you now a story of an explorer called Ernest Shackleton. He was an explorer in the early part of the 20th century who embarked upon an exploration. Much of the major exploratory journeys of the world had already been accomplished, and what remained was just a few things, and one of them was a trans-Antarctic expedition to travel from one side of the Antarctic to the other. And he set off on this expedition with 27 men. 
on a, a, a ship called the Endurance. And en route to Antarctica, they had to land on, on Antarctica in order to begin the journey. But en route, they became stuck in pack ice. And so they were still on the open sea, but they couldn't go anywhere. And at the same time, this pack ice began to drift with another problem. It was exerting immense pressure upon the hull of the ship, of the endurance. And it began to crush this ship, even as they drifted and drifted and drifted further away from their goal. It reached the point where the ship itself had become unable to be used again. They had to abandon ship. It was completely crushed. They salvaged what they could and they set off on a journey to a small island. And this was Elephant Island. And they managed to get there. They took three life rafts with them, three six-meter life rafts, and loaded as much as they could in there. And after a period of a couple of weeks, they'd made it to Elephant Island, much to the dismay of the local penguin and seal population, I'm sure, because uh, that was the source of sustenance. Once they arrived, there was nothing else to eat. But it became apparent there was no rescue coming. And Ernest Shackleton made a decision that he would embark upon a journey with five other men in one of the life rafts to try and get rescue, to go to a small whaling station on an island called South Georgia, which happened to be in the region of 1,400 kilometers away from their current location. And through some of the most inhospitable seas this world has to offer, they embarked upon this journey, these six men. And it was stormy conditions. There were only about five clear days and they had with them a chronometer and a sextant. That was it in terms of their ability to navigate. But they made it. 16 days later, they arrived at South Georgia, an island which is only 100 miles long and 20 miles wide. Now think about that seamanship that it took in order for them to find the island. But upon coming to the island, they were on the wrong side. And they had to trek across the island. And as they pulled the life raft they'd been using onto the shore, the pin holding the rudder fell out at that moment. So they couldn't use the ship to circumnavigate the island. Nonetheless, they took a 36-hour journey across this island and they came to the whaling station and got the rescue they needed. It was another three and a half months before his men were rescued. But here's the amazing thing. All 27 men survived this. And it was just under two years from the time they left until the time they were rescued. And I found an excerpt out of Ernest Shackleton's private writings where he brings a little bit of insight into where his help came from. Please bear with me. The English is quite high. There are words like dearth in here, but uh, we'll navigate it together. When I look back on those days, I have no doubt that providence Providence being an old term for God himself. It's with a capital P. It could just as well be said God. I've no doubt that providence guided us, not only across those snowfields, but across the storm-strewn sea that separated Elephant Island from our landing place on South Georgia. I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me that often we were four, not three, I said nothing to my companions on that point, but afterwards, Woosley said to me, boss, I had a curious feeling on the march that there was another person with us. Green confessed to the same. One feels the dearth of human words, the roughness of mortal speech 
in trying to describe things intangible, but a record of our journeys would be incomplete without a reference to a subject very near to our hearts. So what was near to his heart? Giving glory to God. A reference to the intangible, to the Lord being the fourth companion helping them across this island. Now he was not known as an outwardly professing Christian, but something about this experience gave him a true compass. Now, I'd like to refer to a biblical example, which I think is astounding, and I hadn't seen before until I started preparing for this message. But please, let's read together from Matthew 14, verse 22 to 25. Now, the background to where we're gonna start is Jesus has been ministering to the people, and he's just about across the sea, or send the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. So. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the winds, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. That's normally where we pick up the story. As Jesus comes to the boat and Peter wants to come out and he walks on water, we've heard many messages about that. But I wanna focus on this portion of scripture because to put it into context, to unpack it a little bit, Jesus sent his disciples, so they left. He begins sending the multitudes away. Time is passing. He goes up a mountain by himself to pray. Time is passing. He only goes to his disciples in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. We're looking at a period of about 10 to 12 hours since he sent the disciples away. And my question to you is how did he find them? How did he know where to look? They've been gone for hours. It says here the, storm, the, the, the sea was, was, was swept up, that the waves were contrary. So it wasn't some kind of Caribbean flat walk. All right, we're talking about a real situation of Jesus finding them in turbulent waters. Let me tell you, family of God, it is the exact same situation for you. He found them and he is unchanging. In Hebrews 13 verse eight, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Anything that he ever accomplished, he is still accomplishing and able to accomplish. And he will find you in the midst of whatever stormy waters you might find yourself in. Amen. Amen. Shackleton searched for a destination in order to be rescued. Jesus sought for us, for we are his destination, in order to rescue us. Shackleton searched for ground upon which to place his feet. Jesus searched for us the clay work of his hands to rescue and redeem us. We were always God's first destination. That he has redeemed this world is wonderful or that he will redeem it. But his destination and his purpose was to come and find us. And just as he found those disciples, so he will find you or keep you from being lost in the first place. You are never lost to him. I wanna read one more scripture to you. It's out of John 18, verse eight to 10. 
Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Now this was at the point where those who were coming to, to arrest him had come to the garden of Gethsemane. And so he's speaking to those who would arrest him. I've told you that I'm he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. And listen. Of those you gave me, I have lost none. That word is a word for you and for me, as well as it was for the apostles at that time. Amen. I'd like to move on now to my second point, which is he truly cares. And this is a point very close to my heart because the truth is he does. But once again, we sometimes battle, uh, battle with an intellectual understanding apart from the experience of his care. And I'd like you to turn to Mark, please, if you would. I'll give you a moment. But where we're gonna read from is now another storm. And this one is the one where Jesus was in the boat with the disciples. They were once again crossing the Sea of Galilee. And uh, we pick it up here in verse 37. Mark 4, verse 37 to 38. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling but he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care we are perishing? That was the question they asked him. Do you not care we are perishing? Now I'm quite sure that was not said as a whisper, like they came and gently came to Jesus, and said, oh Jesus, uh, we're perishing, we're perishing. I'm sure there was a lot more to the story, nor did it come out like some monastic uh, chant. Jesus, do you not care? We are perishing. I'm sure there was real emotion in terms of waking the Lord up. And they said this filled with emotion, but I wanna focus on that question they asked him. Do you not care? We are perishing. And I'm sure that sometimes in the midst of really tough times, especially if they've been extended, that kind of question has come up within your heart and you've wrestled with it, and you've had to deal with it. And I pray that I'll be able to answer you now the how much he cares out of two biblical examples. The first is from the story of Lazarus, which we find in John 11. And uh, you're welcome to turn there so long. I'll be reading from verse 33 to 35. But just to give you some background, Jesus had got word that his friend Lazarus was sick. And he specifically in that moment waits another two days before he begins the journey to Bethany where Lazarus lived with his sisters, Mary and Martha, because the Lord had a plan with us. From the moment he heard it, the Lord revealed to him the plan was to resurrect Lazarus. Jesus even says in verse 11, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. So his disciples initially think it's natural sleep. Well, if he sleeps, he will get well. And uh, Jesus' response is that he had passed away and that he's actually on a mission to go and raise him up from the dead. So at the point that Jesus comes into Bethany, Martha initially comes up to him. She goes and calls Mary, and then Mary comes to Jesus with other Jews who are weeping and, and grieving 
for Lazarus's passing. And that's where we begin our text. John 11, 33 to 35. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, Mary, and the Jews, and came, who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept. The shortest scripture in the Bible. My question to you is why did he weep? The context of what he was about to do, he had full 100% knowledge he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew this days ago. Within half an hour, maybe an hour, maybe less, Lazarus would be with him enjoying a celebratory feast. And he knew this without doubting. He could have been aloof at their grief and their pain and said, they're crying, but it's okay. I've got a, a lovely surprise coming for them. But instead, he knits his hearts with them in their grief in the full knowledge of what he is about to do in terms of raising Lazarus. And he weeps with them with true compassion. That is your God. That is your God. Now I have another example I'd like to share with you and this is to do with Mary Magdalene. It was actually a bit of a thing. I was always wondering if it was the same Mary, but no, there were two. Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene in the scripture that I'm about to read to you and you're welcome to turn to John 20, so long, and just uh, park it, Wim Philip. <laughs> but here we have a situation where Jesus has been crucified. He's been laid to rest in the tomb and it's the third day he's risen, but no one has seen him yet. So the disciples and Mary arrive at the tomb and as they look inside, they see it's empty. Now the disciples depart, but Mary stays weeping bitterly brokenly, brokenheartedly for Jesus. She loved him. And in that moment, we pick up the text here. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. That is beautiful. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And I will come back to that. But what I really wanna focus here is where he said, do not cling to me. Now, I know that in the moment might seem confusing to you, but I wanna unpack it a little bit. Jesus had a divine mandate from before the foundation of the world to redeem humankind to himself. That plan was set in motion before time even began, and yet it was time, it was the process of time where the perfect will of God came to the moment where the fullness of that plan could be manifested. Jesus was born, he walked through his earthly ministry and was faithful in everything and then was crucified. 
But after his crucifixion, there was a portion of his mandate which took place according to him descending. Even here, we see him say, I have not yet ascended. But he was at work. He went and reclaimed the keys of, of life and death from the enemy. He reclaimed the authority that was lost in the Garden of Eden. He put into place the plan for the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdom of our God in the fullness of time. He ministered to those who had passed away before his coming. But at the point that he appeared to Mary, he had not yet ascended. That is what he said to her specifically in the text. But what was the next part of his ministry? We find that in Hebrews 9. I'll just read it to you. This was the ascended part of Jesus' ministry, of what he was still to do at the time he spoke to Mary. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. So we're talking about with God in heaven. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So what Jesus did with Mary is significant in terms of his care for you because he took one side step on the plan of all creation to redeem us to him, to comfort her in her grief, to go to her with his compassion and tell her it's gonna be all right, I am risen, I'm here. He could have looked at her and thought, well, she's gonna find out soon enough anyway. Let me just go to the Father and finish my mandate and offer my blood once and for all and redeem humankind. But instead, he takes a moment and he goes to her and he comforts her in her grief. Now that wasn't written just for her. It's in there because it's a message to us of the love of your Father and how much he cares for you. It said in the word, at one point, Jesus was, was questioned by Philip, saying, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long? Do you not know that if you have seen me, you've seen the Father? If you wanna know what the Father looks like, look at Jesus, look at his ministry, look at the compassion with which he ministered, and you'll have a picture of the Father. Settle today, once and for all and forever, that he cares for you. Never doubt that again. I know the noise of the storm can become loud. I know that you can feel overwhelmed. But I just wanna tell you that you might, as you might feel, you're trapped in a tomb of circumstances and trouble. That is not your destiny. You will pass through those waters. You will come out. But don't separate yourself from the lover of your soul, and never doubt that he cares for you. Amen. All right, my third point. I will not leave you orphans. That is a very specific use of a word. It's found in John 14, 18, where Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. You can turn to John 14 so long if you like. I will be reading a more extended passage out of that in a moment. But Jesus didn't say, I will, leave, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as lonely servants. 
He said, I will not leave you orphans. He chose that word on purpose because it brings forth such a deep truth that the Lord is our Father. We're part of his family. We're not just his servants. There's no other religion that can claim to that, being part of the royal family of the God they serve. We are part of God's royal family and we are adopted into him. In Romans 8 verse 15, it says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the Holy Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So it's the Holy Spirit within us that gives us the seal and the understanding and the depth of the knowledge that we are adopted into the family of God. But in terms of us not being left orphans, there's no love like a parent's love for their children. Without that love, to be a true orphan in this world, I think is a terrible, terrible experience. And the Lord speaks so much about the care of orphans, right from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's something so close to his heart. But that love that we experience is something that grounds us. It's something that, that helps form our characters and form our lives. And in terms of Jesus' own ministry here on earth, he actually said something so amazing for me that he said to his disciples, it is to your benefit that I go away. And that seems ludicrous in one sense because I'm sure that you and I have had thoughts at times of I'm going through a storm, but if Jesus was just here physically, it would be okay. If I could just hold his hand, if I could just see him with these physical eyes, it'll be all right because I'd know it's gonna be okay. And yet, in Jesus' own words, he said it was to your benefit, your and my benefit, you're speaking to the apostles as well, for him to go away. We find this um, in John 16, verse seven, which I'll read, and then we'll go to John 14. But in John 16, verse seven, it says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And here we see Jesus saying, it's better for me to go because then I will send the Holy Spirit to you who won't be just with you like I was with you. He will be in you. We find this in John 14, 16 to 18. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. You see, they already had the experience of the Holy Spirit being with them. When the Lord sent them out two by two, when any miracle that they performed, they performed by the power of the Holy Spirit being with them. But here we see he uses the future tense that the Holy Spirit will, will be in you. This only took place after Pentecost. Before Pentecost, it was a situation where they were still easily moved by the circumstances around them. And I'll share an example with you, back to the storm situation of the 12 apostles in the boat with Jesus. What was their reaction to the storm? They were overwhelmed. They wanted out, they wanted, they wanted relief. They were terrified. And Jesus woke up and rebuked the storm but I wanna compare that situation to another storm situation involving another apostle. Paul, 
became an apostle after Jesus' resurrection, after Pentecost, had received the Holy Spirit, and he found himself in the midst of a storm. He was on a ship with 275 other people en route to Rome, and they got caught in a, a massive storm that held them for two weeks with no relief to the point of them having despaired of being saved. Can you imagine the peer pressure that was on Paul under those circumstances? He had 275 reasons to be discouraged and a few more besides if he looked outside his window. And yet, he became the lightning rod of God's will in that situation, got a word in that situation, was not moved because he had the Holy Spirit within him. And it is right that I give honor to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit is the theme of this year, that he is our helper, he is God with us. Although the disciples had the companionship of Jesus, they did not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. And at that point, it moved to it being better for them with the Holy Spirit in them than having Jesus physically with them. There was a different dynamic of ministry coming out of that. Now, one last thing about Paul. He testifies of his life, and he says three times, this is in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep. Three times shipwrecked. He spent 24 hours in open water, and it didn't break him. Was it a storm? Yes. Was it significant? Of course. Was it his end? No. The Lord brought him through it, and I'm telling you, the Lord will bring you through your storm. Amen. Amen. He has not changed. He will never change. In him is no shadow of turning. He is faithful and true, and he's not going to stop from either pursuing you, keeping you, caring for you, and guiding you. I want to quickly move through my last point. Fear can be a factor. There's no doubt that storms breed fear and that we in our human condition very often experience that fear as a real thing. But I tell you what pops up with the experience of fear is the guilt at feeling fear in the first place. We're Christians. We're supposed to walk in faith and be strong no matter what. Stir up the word. There is truth to that. I'm not pushing down faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11 verse one. And I just wanna tell you that faith is an important dynamic of our walk, but faith is built on the experience of God's love first. And I've got a scripture here to prove it to you. 1 John 4 verse 18 to 19 says this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Do you see the key? When you are afraid, just pray, Lord, I am in fear. I just need the experience of your closeness. I need the experience of your love being poured out upon my life. That's like turning on a light in a dark room. Light doesn't fight the darkness. It displaces it. And upon the displacement of the fear, faith will arise. I wanna give you an example, a practical example. Let's say you have a five-year-old child who has a terrible nightmare and you go in their room and tears are streaming down their face 
And uh, you say, well, I'm gonna say little Frankie under these circumstances. I had used, uh, thought of what using little Johnny, but it just somehow didn't sit right. So you walk into the room and you see little Frankie in tears. What is your first reaction to that child? Are you gonna rebuke him for his lack of faith? Why are you scared? You must stand on the word. You must proclaim the victory. No, you're first gonna sit with him. You're gonna comfort him. You're gonna, make, you're gonna tell him it's all right. And then you can pray with him and say, okay, let's pray. Lord, make Frankie strong. Lord, next time it happens, I pray that you will touch him. He will be aware of your presence. And immediately, the faith 